Sunday and winter's back on Wednesday, so, and uh, tomorrow it won't rain, but then Friday we have rain. Weekend's going to be beautiful, but then next week it's going to rain, so, but as long as Sundays are nice, I don't care, right, so we can have it, and uh, it just so happens that Easter falls on Rodeo Weekend this year, and according to Ali, there's only been six times in 35 years, it didn't rain on rodeo day. So chances are it'll rain uh, statistically on Easter. But we're going to have a sunrise service out there um, a little after sunrise at 7 o'clock. And, uh, and uh, if it rains, we'll bring it on in here. And, um, and then we're going to have breakfast. It's going to be pancakes and eggs and bacon and stuff. Um, after, from 8 to 9, uh, after the sunrise service, and then we'll have our services in here uh, at 9 and 11. And of course, our new pastor will be sharing. Exciting, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. You know, it, it's such a, a joy because, you know, what's that, uh, you know, desire withheld, uh, you know, sickens the heart or whatever, you know. And, uh, and, but God just kept uh, telling us over and over again, the pastoral search team, don't worry, don't strive, don't, God, I'm doing it, I'm doing it my timing. And, and uh, it was um, very interesting just to see how the Lord did it. But I'll tell you what, it wasn't by an ambitious man throwing himself forward, quite the opposite. It was... Greg, you're such an amazing man of God and character and reputation and um, man, I mean, you, you would, I, you know, personally, I've been a senior pastor 32 years and it's really hard to have too many guys that I could say, hey, I, I would love that guy to be my pastor. Uh, and I feel that way about Greg and I've told him I'm repeated times. Um, what a blessing uh, it would be the church if he would accept that call. But him and Norma held out and waited on the Lord, and it was a beautiful thing, agonizing, uh, but beautiful when we were able to rest in God's uh, perfect timing. Well, tonight we're starting into a brand new book, the book of Colossians. Now, some things that people really enjoy is they go to the church app, and uh, if you have that on your cell phone or your whatever, you can find the notes for tonight's sermon and follow along. I have a lot of extra verses in there that I'll just mention or whatever. But uh, in these four chapters, we've got 95 verses. And um, Lightfoot's commentary says, the most unimportant town that Paul ever wrote a letter. It was a tiny little town. The town that was significant was Laodicea, which sort of Colossae was just sort of the, on the outskirts of Laodicea, which was a large Roman city. And so um, last week, I was wanting to have a map, so this week I made sure we got the map. So there's Colossae right there, because I pulled up a map for Colossae. And, uh, and here is Laodicea right here, right next to it, there. Now, um, this is Turkey today. This up here would be, it's Istanbul, 
And uh, this is a bridge that goes across here. And they say that Turkey is part in Asia Minor and it's partly in Europe because this is Europe over here. Um, and so um, you can see that if you come down uh, in Turkey, there it is. And this is where the majority of the New Testament churches were planted. Here's Ephesus right here, which is well known. And um, when Paul left on his journey to head to Europe, or through Asia Minor, he grabbed Luke and Silas and uh, Timothy. He had a big evangelistic team on this big third missionary journey. And he leaves Israel down here, and he travels up, and he wants to go up into Bethania. And God, the Lord says, no. Galatia, no. They keep walking, and God's saying, no, 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 until they got all the way over to here. And, uh, and, and he had nowhere to go. And the Lord gave him a vision, and it was a woman over here. Can I have the other map? Um, so here we are in Turkey here. Um, where'd it go? He, he, where are we at? This Anika. Okay. Go, this is Europe here. So go back, go back one. So he came here. He's going to cross over. Here's the Aegean Sea. We'll see that in just a second. And there's a woman, and he went to Philippi, and there's a woman over here that, um, here we go. There's a woman over here in, in Thessalonica, where he comes to Thessalonica, and there's a woman who's from Ephesus, but she was vacationing in Thessalonica, and she was the one in the vision. Although Paul said it was a guy, um, probably wouldn't have gone. He probably wouldn't have thought the, the, the vision was from the Lord if it was a woman uh, wanting him to come. I don't know. And so after this, he returns back to Ephesus. Let's go back over to Ephesus here. And Paul sets up here for three years. It's a college town. He ended up being a professor there, speaking uh, in class, out of class. Uh, a large Jewish population there, but also one of the major Roman hubs. And uh, so Paul did never see himself setting still, but that's what God had him to do. And here's where many great miracles happened, and, and the gospel went out, and all these college kids and people passing through returned home after being born again, and they would lead their families and their cities to the Lord. And so Asia Minor really didn't uh, get saved through Paul going to it. It was by others going to it. And the Colossae church, Paul had never been there. He never, they had never seen him. It was a guy by the name of Epaphras that we're going to see, who was the, the guy that brought the gospel um, to them. Go back over to the other map. This is from last week. So Paul, the farthest he ever got was right here to the Mount Dalmatia area, which this is Croatia right here. There's a place right here called Split, it's a very famous place, and I've been there a few times taking the elders and pastors from Hungary there and staying on the beach. Beautiful, beautiful coast. All kinds of beautiful islands through here. But two hours over, you can get to Italy, and then another two hours, you get to Rome. Um, you can see Italy from Croatia here looking across. And uh, so anyway... There's, there's a lot there if you study that map, and I'm not going to go back and try to point out the things I tried last week as we ended 2 Timothy. But um, 
It's on the southern edge of the Lycus Valley, uh, near a large and more significant city, Laodicea, about eight miles away. Hierapolis, another famous city right next to it, northwest of it. Um, it was approximately 112 miles due east of Ephesus uh, in the modern, in, in Turkey today. So um, Paul is the author of this letter, 63 AD, which if you remember, uh, 2 Timothy, his final letter would be uh, in 64 AD, and then he would be beheaded. And uh, he probably, again, Epaphras possibly is the pastor of the church, but also was a, a guy that had spent a lot of time with Paul and ministered with Paul. And he, Paul says in Colossians 1, 7, as you have learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And uh, in Colossians 2.1, he tells us there, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So he's just, you can't see my concern because you've never seen me. You can't picture me being concerned for you, but I am very much concerned to you for you. And as we're going to discover in this book, there was a lot of wild and crazy philosophies going around and mixing uh, the various religions together, making what we had called an early Gnosticism. And uh, this is what Paul's going to combat in this letter, which is very applicable to today. Paul was in prison at this time in Colossians 4.3. Paul says, meanwhile, praying also for you that God would open to us door for the world to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So I need you to pray for us that we're able to preach all the sermons, even though I'm in chains, it wouldn't hinder what God has. In Colossians 4.18, this salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace with you, amen. So Paul wrote this letter with a great concern because there was a mixture of Jewish legalism and a mysticism. Um, and it's in these days, it would sort of take from various religions and then create a religion. Uh, and this is the beginning of Gnosticism, which if you don't know what that is, we'll get into that. You know, so it wasn't Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or the health and wealth gospel. Um, it was its own new cult of this time taking much of Christianity. And so for many, they would say, hey, this, this looks like Christianity. It's just like some today who don't really know what the Jehovah Witnesses teach or Mormons teach. They may say, hey, they, they seem like Christians just like you guys. They go to church on Sunday and they sing the similar songs. And uh, you guys should just get along. Um, but if you know what they believe, it's not anywhere near close. It's, it's, it's a lie. Yes, I understand. It may look to the undiscerning person as, uh, as not threatening to the truth of Christianity, but to those who know the scriptures, um, Satan, who appears as an angel of light and brings his heretical teachings away from Jesus, diminishing Jesus. There is one more letter written to the church of Colossae, to Colossae but it's to an individual named Philemon. And that little tiny paragraph of a book, Philemon, right? That was a guy who was in Colossae. 
and Paul wrote him a particular letter because a slave that had ran away from him made it to Rome. Paul led him to the Lord. He was amazing, effective in ministry. Paul said, this guy should be on my team of ministry, but you got a debt to be paid to your slave owner uh, back in Colossae. So he sent the slave with this letter back to Philemon saying, hey, uh, for me, would you let this guy go uh, and not punish him, which would be a death sentence for being a runaway slave, but see him as a brother and even as your pastor and uh, send him back to me. Paul had a, a big ask there, but it was, again, Jesus revealing himself in that little paragraph of a book. Well, in chapter one, verse one tonight, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul, that's really not his name. That was a name that was given to him. It's actually a Gentile name. His real name was Saul. And boy, was he proud of that. The first king of Israel, the big giant man from the tribe, little tiny tribe of Benjamin. So there wasn't a lot of people from that tribe. And, uh, and they really only had one person in their particular tribal history that had any claim to fame, and that was the great King Saul. And so his parents named him, and I think there was probably a lot of boys in the tribe of Benjamin named Saul. And it was a very prideful name. Now, Paul's parents were actual Roman citizens, even though they were Jews, which is almost impossible to do at this time. It would take millions of dollars to be able to buy a Roman citizenship. But his parents back in Troas had a very successful business, I assume tent making, because that's what Paul had uh, known how to do. But they, sung, they sent their young boy away to Jerusalem at a very young age to learn all the theology. And not just any school, the school of Gamaliel, the most sought after school, the most uh, intelligent uh, theologian of those days. And they were a part of a very, very strict group of Judaism. There's all kinds of different groups. If you go to Israel, you see different types of little beanies they have, right, Thamakas? And, and, and some of them, they go to the left a little bit. Some they tilt forward a little bit. Some they have on the side. Some are bigger. Some are smaller. All of those things identify which sect you're of. So there's many Jewish sects. But at this particular time, they had a Pharisee sect that was the most stringent, hardcore, legalistic group and they were very, very proud of it. And so Paul was there and he had become Gamaliel's top pupil. Interesting that the main thing that Gamaliel was his sort of theology point claim to fame was that God is not just the God of the Jews, but the God of all, including Gentiles and that it was their obligation to go into the world of the Gentiles and to try to proselyte them into this very strict Pharisee sect. And that was ingrained in Paul. And so because of that, he probably learned a lot of extra languages and learned a lot of customs and about all the world religions that he might be going to. And it's interesting that... Uh, 
The Lord's the sovereign God, isn't he? There's no coincidence in his kingdom. All those things made Paul an uh, amazing, unusual guy. But boy, he was serious about stopping this Christianity. This is a sect of Judaism he could not stand. And nor could his sect. Um, on more than one occasion, when I've been in Israel, you have these group of young zealots. I mean, they're anywhere from 13 to 18. There was one when we were in uh, Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, and we were just walking around with our group, and these guys came out, and it was a special night, and these guys were just dancing and playing music really loud, and they would just on purpose knock down the Gentiles. <laughs> And, and if they got up and fought them, the whole group would just like pound on them. And uh, we were out there and somebody came running up, get indoors, get indoors right now. And, uh, and sure enough, man, these guys were just, it was just basically a big street fight with whoever was out there and not a part of their sect. Had a friend, Manuel, who went down to the Ben-Gurion Street there in the old Jerusalem. And he was in a coffee shop and people started talking to him and he was sharing the Lord with them. And, and uh, this group of young teenage boys again started gathering outside. And the guy came over and said, you got about 30 seconds to go out that back door and get out of here or they will kill you. I mean, this is, not a, this is no doubt they will kill you because you trying to convert uh, a Jew on this holy old city of Jerusalem on this sacred Ben-Gurion square, uh, a famous uh, person in the Jewish history who, who brought the Hebrew language back to Israel after 2,000 years, David Ben-Gurion, and then their first leader that brought them into um, being a, a country after th a few thousand years. So, um, they, that, yeah, you, you've crossed so many lines. They will kill you. And so Paul was that type of guy. He, he had, did not have a problem to be a zealot and be physical. And on a particular day, they had one Christian who was being very effective in the old city of Jerusalem. And his name was Stephen. And they kept trying to debate him, but the power of God was upon this ignorant man who was just a deacon in the church. His job was to pass out food to the widows. That was it. But they couldn't confound him. He kept winning the debates. Even these great intellects with their doctorates in their theological schools, he was just, he, they, and they could not get past him. And so they just said, let's take him and, and stone him to death. And that's exactly what they did. They did a really quick little mock trial with this sect. And, and, and they took off their outer garments so they could throw the rocks to kill Stephen. And, and Paul said, hey, right here, give me your robes. I'll, I'll watch them for you. And, and Paul talks about how he had such a severe hatred towards Stephen that that was a proud moment for him up to that point. But then as Stephen was being stoned, the very first Christian martyr. He just was just touched by the peace this guy had. And when Stephen looked up and said that he had saw the Lord, 
And, and then he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, just like Jesus on the cross. It affected Paul. But he hardened his heart, and he got letters from the top Jewish council and the Roman authorities to be able to leave Jerusalem and go down to Damascus and to stop a very powerful Christian movement happening down there. And he was riding quickly that, down that road, a Damascus road. It's a road when we go to Israel, we travel down. And a bright light shone, knocked him to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Why are you kicking against the goad? Why are you kicking and trying to get loose from something that I'm just putting my heavy hand upon you? And at that point, when the light left, he was blinded. And they led him on into the city of Damascus. For three days, he didn't eat or drink. And then um, the Lord spoke to one of the Christian leaders in Damascus and said, hey, Ananias, go lay your hands upon Brother Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, what do you mean? This guy is, is he's the most notorious Christian arrester and killer. And uh, he said, you let me worry about that. You just obey me. And he wasn't happy about it. And he went in there and Paul uh, still was unable to see, couldn't eat, couldn't drink. And Ananias laid hands on him and scales fell off of Paul's eyes and he could see. And Paul immediately started preaching the gospel and uh, immediately they tried to kill him. So the Christians had to sneak him out, lowering him over the wall at night in a basket, and then he fled away. And the Lord led him three years into the Arabian desert, Saudi Arabia today, and where he just lived by himself, sort of in, in seclusion. And during that time, all the Old Testament scriptures that he knew, the Lord revealed to him Jesus throughout all the Bible, just like Jesus did in and in Luke 24, remember on the Maus Road, where after he raised from the dead, he had two of the apostles and he was talking to them and they were telling him the story and, and Jesus expounded to them how the Christ must suffer and die and raise again. And it says he went through all the scriptures showing them Christ. And then when they sat down to eat, he broke the bread and then they could see it was Jesus and he disappeared from them. And it said their hearts burned within them. So Paul's heart was burning for quite some time. But after that time, he just went home. And he was living back in Troas, making tents. And uh, about 14 years went by. And then Barnabas from Antioch, not too far from Jerusalem, there's a lot of Antiochs all over the place, but um, went and got him and said, hey, this revival's taking off and I need some more teachers. Come and help me pastor this church. And Paul did. And when the Jews of Jerusalem heard this, they, they thought it was a big scam. It was just a, a way that, that Paul was infiltrating to find out who's who and where they lived to kill them all. But Barnabas persuaded them that this wasn't the case. But Paul didn't go up to Jerusalem to meet him. He never met any apostles, but he knew the gospel that God had given him. And interesting that it was clear to Paul, the gospel of Christ, 
than the apostles. And on more than one occasion, he had to rebuke the apostles for not following Jesus' example. And it's not his opinion that he was right. It was their opinion that Paul was right. And, uh, and the grace of God was so clear to Paul, uh, far, far more clear than anyone else. And no doubt that's why God used him to write half of the New Testament. Well, <clears throat> Paul would be there in Antioch, and, and it tells us in chapter 13 that there was a time when a number of prophets and teachers were there in Antioch, and they just didn't go out of town. They had a little staycation. They didn't have a vacation, but they just shut themselves away to pray, and I love this, and to minister to the Lord. And as they were praying, one of the prophets said, thus saith the Lord, it's time for Barnabas and Paul to go do the work that I have called them to do. And after that, in chapter 14 of Acts, they would then be called apostles, sent one. And that's what we see here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, an apostle. Now, as we go through here, we're actually going to see these are all Greek words, not translated, but transliterated. So when we don't have a word in our language, we just take the letters of the Greek language in this case, and we just say, what's it look close to? Oh, that looks like an A. Okay, then A. What's that look like? A P. Okay, that's a P. And they create a word of transliteration using the letters of our English alphabet. And thus we have the word Paul. We have the word apostle. We have the word Jesus. We have the word Christ. A matter of fact, half of that Colossians 1.1 is all Greek words transliterated. There aren't words in English. And so Paul, which means little, an apostle, which means one who is sent out, a delegate, a, a messenger, an ambassador. But it's in the Christian sense that it's being sent out by God. And so Paul, no doubt, was the replacement for Judas. Remember in that upper room? Peter, supposed to be praying, but begins to do some administrative duties. And he says, hey, I've noticed that all of us apostles, us remaining, the 11 of us who are in this upper room, we all started being first John the Baptist disciples. You guys remember that? And John the Baptist said, hey, follow Jesus. And we all then left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. And then um, all of us were there when Jesus ascended into heaven. And I've been looking here, you know, it started out 500 people in prayer. We're down to 120 now. But uh, I, I realize there's only two guys here who have those same traits that were with John the Baptist with us and then um, were there all the way up till Jesus ascended. And so let's draw straws or roll the dice. I don't know how he did it. Some kind of lot. And it picked Matthias. And, uh, and so they, there's our 12th apostle. But that doesn't seem like the Lord ever confirmed that. But Paul was an apostle born out of due time. 
you say, well, there's only 12 apostles, right? Actually, in the New Testament, it mentions 24 different people being apostles. Um, James, the brother of our Lord, the, the apostle James, uh, died only a few months after he started the ministry. He, he was with the Lord only a few months, the first apostle in heaven with Jesus. But his half-brother, who wrote the book of James, it tells us in Galatians 1.19 that uh, Paul says, I saw no other apostles there except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul calls him an apostle. Barnabas in Acts 14.14, 14, as well as Paul in Acts 14.14, 14, are called apostles. Apollos, out of uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 9, is called uh, an apostle. Timothy and Silas in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 are called apostles. Uh, Epaphroditus um, in Philippians 2, 25 is called an apostle. Now, some of the translations will translate that word messenger or whatever, but in the Greek, it is the Greek, same Greek word. Then we have two unnamed guys in 2 Corinthians 8.23. We don't know who they are that were called apostles. And then Andronicus and Unia um, probably are being called apostles because it can be translated. They were note. They were that, that Andronicus and, Eunice and Unia were noted amongst the apostles. It could be translated that way. Or it could be translated that Andronicus and Unia are noted apostles. It can be equally translated both ways. So either they are well known to the apostles or they were well uh, known apostles. Most translators believe it's the second. They were well known apostles. So if you look at that, uh, you, you have 24, 22, 24, it depends on how you count it. Um, however, in Revelation, God has 12 pillars representing the 12 apostles. So those original 12 apostles, even though it went down to 11 in a number after Judas betrayed the Lord, they continue to call it 12 apostles, um, were unique apostolic men who had been with the Lord and, and had the revelation directly from Jesus. So they always will hold a place. But yet there are many men that were clearly sent out by God, equal in power, equal in authority as those 12 disciples. And Paul was one of them. However, <laughs> the churches that he started, the churches that he ministered in, the places he went, after these churches were started and after the people became Christians and they heard other people come through and teach like Peter and Apollos and so forth, they quickly disrespected Paul as an apostle because Paul never rubbed shoulders with these guys. He had had a couple contacts with Peter, um, met the half-brother of our Lord James. Outside of that, he never met any of the other apostles. And so um, if somebody were to go up to John or Andrew or one of those guys and say, Wow, man, I got to hear Paul. Oh, yeah, here's a great teacher. I've never met him myself. Well, then then why, why are they calling him Apostle Paul? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I know he's a great guy. I know Peter has told me some good things about him. But And, and Paul never really got recognized by the people 
um, and showed the respect and really more importantly, listening to his doctrine as the doctrine of Christ. It was a wrestling match the whole time. But yet in the book of Acts verse nine, when Paul was stopped and Ananias said, I don't wanna go lay hands on him. He said, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and also the children of Israel. He's a unique called person. And um, Paul tells us about his calling. In Galatians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So remember, Paul, for many, many years, uh, was known by a handful of people of Damascus, and then he was in Arabia, then in Tarsus. Barnabas came and got him. Um, it was never something that man uh, did. It was something that God did. In Galatians 1.15, Paul says there, it pleased God who separated me, listen to this, from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. I think we all can do that in our life, can't we? We look back and, and we just see, I should have been dead there. <laughs> um, boy, the Lord saved me out of that. And, and then, oh man, he gave me that school teacher and I lived here and then I lived there. And, and you start looking at it and you realize I wouldn't be here had it not all those little nuances and turns and bends and things that were tragic to me, things that uh, were shocking to me, things that were hurtful to me, things that I couldn't understand. But I, I, I see now God's hand powerfully in all of these things to bring me to here. And so we can all say, we're called of by God, by the will of God. And from our mother's womb, and even past that, um, God has separated us before time began to be his chosen ones. In 1 Timothy 1.1, he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through 15, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, and I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which was in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul had a unique, unique calling. Oh, you're an apostle. So tell me about Jesus. I, I never met him in person. At the time uh, he spoke to me, there was a light shining that blinded me. Um, didn't see anything. And uh, the Lord has spoken to me. He has definitely spoken to me through the word. Well, tell me, how did it happen? Well, I used to kill Christians, put them in jail. And uh, I was trying to stomp out Christianity. And uh, really, I should have a death sentence for what I did, but instead God made me an apostle. In 2 Timothy 1.11, he said, to which I was appointed, ordained, a preacher, an apostle, a teacher to the Gentiles. So not just being an apostle, but he was one who would preach and teach, preach salvation and teach the doctrines. He was a professor. He was one who line upon line could expound any scripture no matter how difficult the passage. And there 
we see Paul in 2 Timothy 1.1, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Ephesians 1.1, and here in Colossians 1.1, each saying, by the will of God. Why? Because those churches, the men in those churches, were unwilling to recognize that. And uh, therefore, Paul had to be quite adamant and, and uh, forceful with, with saying, you're wrong. And it's not about me lording it over you because I've never done that. When I came to your place, I didn't ask for money like all these other guys coming through that are calling themselves apostles. And when I was with you, I wasn't like some of these guys that would slap you when you gave a wrong answer like the rabbis would do to the kids in the rabbinical schools. I paid not only my own way, but all of those are with me. I financially, I didn't want you to think that I stayed with you a day or three days or three weeks or three years had anything to do with money. Therefore, I, the Lord put this burden upon me. Not that the churches later wouldn't send aid to Paul, um, yet it, it wasn't at the time he was there for those very reasons. And then he says in the end of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So at this time, while he's in prison, Timothy, who was with him, no doubt, well known to them, who was with him in Ephesus, and now the pastor in Ephesus is, is saying greetings. And uh, of course, I don't have to say, talk a lot about Timothy. We just studied the book of 2 Timothy. But we know that Timothy was uniquely lined up with Paul. That his traditions, his ways, his convictions, you know, we know Paul had a conviction about alcohol. Probably his Jewish sect was the vow of the Nazarite. And, and he would not drink. But when Timothy had horrible stomach problems, and the only medicine was wine, he commands Timothy in 1 Timothy, take at least a little wine for your stomach's sake, for medicine. But it sounds like that Timothy even then would not drink any wine. And so Paul says this of Timothy in Philippians 2. It can't be clear to understand how tightly these guys were woven together. In Philippians 2, verse 19 to 22, but I trust in the Lord Jesus and Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have not like anyone like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. So there's this unique thing where I can tell that Timothy, like myself, cares first, and you are the priority, and he will sacrifice himself to whatever degree he has to, to finish that work that God is doing in you. Everybody else, I, I just, I do not see that level of the same heart that I have. Well, in verse two, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints. Boy, there's a lot of mix up on that these days, isn't there? But you know this word saints is 66 times in the New Testament. And it is always plural. It is never 
singular. So the idea of God calling an individual a saint, it just doesn't happen in the Bible. Because we together as the bride of Christ are the saints. And every one of us that are born again and are a part of the body of Christ, we are saints. What does it mean? Holy ones, separated ones, sanctified ones. But so often we, we believe there can be such a thing as a super saint, as some guy that is so holy that he just never sins. You know, he, he never has BO, his poop doesn't stink. And, you know, he could walk on water and, and he never leaves a footprint in the sand when he walks on the, by the beach. Um, and this is just ridiculous. There has never been any saint like that on the earth, save Jesus Christ. All the rest of us are in human sinful flesh. And so no matter how wonderful the person may have been, he was no saint. <laughs> Nobody has lived a holy life to the degree to say, you're holy. I, I, I'm sorry, that's only through the eyes of, the, of God that that can be seen. But we find in Romans 1.7, it says those who are beloved of God in Rome called saints. In 1 Corinthians 1.2, the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus are called saints. In Ephesians 1.1, to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, they're called saints. The beloved ones, the sanctified ones, the faithful ones, they're called saints because they have intentionally set themselves aside to the Lord. God calls them saints, and then they say, I want to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Lord, you're calling me holy. That makes me want to be holy. You look at me, and I love you, and, and I, I've washed you in water of the word. You're without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle in my eyes. And I'm just going, it makes me want to, to be that person. Isn't that the way it works? I mean, we need to be woken up by a negative truth to realize we need change, but we can never change by the negative. It's always the positive that gives us the power to change. Faith, hope, and love, these three, right? And uh, it's faith that I can do all things through Christ strengthens me. There's a hope that the things that the Lord's speaking of me, I can now walk in. And, and it's a beautiful thing when we begin to follow Jesus and want to be like him because he's already seen us that way, right? I mean, if, if uh, your son's in the backyard trying to perfect his pitching technique and he throws the ball over the fence and it breaks the neighbor's whatever, window or whatever, and the neighbor's upset about the broken window. Does the dad come home and say, I don't love you, and you're a horrible child, you're always doing things wrong, and, and now you're breaking the, you know, the neighbor's window, can't you get anything right? 
it, it just, what, what kind of father would say those kind of things? I mean, he'd just say to the neighbor going, hey, let's see if your kid can hit my window. I bet he can't. But my kid sure can throw a fast ball and I'll pay for the window. It's no big deal. There are no superhumans. We, again, go through the scriptures and we look at Noah, one man who stood against the whole world. Oh, 120 years, it took him to build the ark and he was righteous. He's the only guy on earth righteous. But the last thing we see is him drunk, naked in the tent. What is God trying to say? That the most righteous man on the earth, a man that was a prophet, a man that spent 120 years of his 600 years of life building an ark and gathering all the animals around the world. It was an amazing thing what he did. And he's in the hall of faith. No doubt he's great in the kingdom of heaven. But the Lord says, I don't want you to think that Noah was a saint because he was perfect. I don't want you to think that he was a mighty man of God and that I counted him righteous because he was perfect. I want the final thing to you and to know about the greatest man, the only man that was stood against the entire population of the earth and said, you are all wrong, but me, because I know God of Adam and Eve, my grandparents. And I'm telling you that you're in sin and need to repent. And he was ostracized by the world at that time. But God wants us to remember that he was a super saint, but it wasn't because of him. It was because of the grace and the power of God. Abraham, the father of our faith, the father of Judaism, was a man who stood still and cowardice while he lied saying Sarah was his sister rather than his wife, sort of half true, uh, ended up in these harems of Pharaoh and Abimelech. And of course, we then talk about David, the man after God's own heart, uniquely visualized in the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord is gonna rule from the throne of David forever and ever. He's gonna rule the kingdoms of the new heavens and the new earth upon the throne of David. It's amazing that our Lord would, would see David in such a high light when we know of his failures were great and many. But God sees us as saints. And what does it tell us in 1 Samuel 16, 7? The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so in the New Testament, when we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven and I can't forgive myself and, and only you through your death, coming into human flesh, being a man, you can be my substitute, being God in human flesh. Your one sacrifice is good for all men for all times. I claim that. I believe that your death and resurrection can take away my sin and, and bring me into harmony with you and then with man. I believe that. Would you receive me? In that moment, the old sinful way is, is circumcised out, it says in Romans 2. And, and now we are saints. We are righteous. That's the way God sees us. And this is faith. The righteous man will be declared righteous, how? 
by faith. And what does that mean? That, that means that we agree with God in whatever God says. Talking about marriage or kids or money or that we are saints. <laughs> that we wouldn't disagree with God. Now I'm looking out here, I don't see any saints. I go to the Catholic Church, I don't see any statues of saints either. I mean, they call them that. They say that every time the Vatican makes a new saint, it brings a billion dollars in the first year into the treasury of the, the Catholic Church. A lot of jewelry and so forth. Satan does not want you to think you're a saint. In Revelation 12, it says that he is the accuser night and day against us. He is trying to say, you're no saint, and look at this, look at that, look at that. Remember Joshua, the high priest, you may not, but in that little minor prophet called Zechariah, it says that when Satan appeared before the Lord, that he then accused the high priest, Joshua, and, excuse me, Joseph, and, and, and said, look at him. You've got to condemn him. If, if the high priest uniform is ever dirtied or ripped, it's a death sentence. If the hat is ever marred, that's a death sentence. And he has lost his hat. And look at how filthy his garments are. And then the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. This is a brand that I have plucked from the fire. And then he orders the angels to put a new garment upon him, a new hat upon him. And then he says, looks great to me. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then the Lord says, for I have moved, removed his iniquity from him and also from the house of Israel. And so we as believers got to walk by faith. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to what? The obedience of Christ. Do you understand the Christian walk cannot happen unless we by faith believe all the things God says about us? There just comes that point. And you see it in the Psalms where David is, is declaring that I'm, I'm a king. I was taken from the ash heap, but now I'm a king and I'm a prince amongst the people of God. There's just that point where God wants you to say, do you sense it? <laughs> can you believe it until you can see it? It says that in Hebrews, it says those men of God, even though they didn't have it on earth, they could visualize it as happening. And they embraced it, even though it wasn't there, they fully embraced it, that the things that God said they hadn't done yet, he would fully do. And because of that, their hearts were just full of joy, not wanting to go back to the land that God delivered them from, even though that would have been wealth and comfort and modernization. But their heart was to be with God in a new heavens and a new earth, and, and God was well pleased to be called their God. There just has to come that point, just to sense God's good pleasure upon your life. And that's, I, I've sensed that <laughs> for many years. 
When my time as being a senior pastor of Calvary San Diego last March, actually, this, this month, a year ago, I, I just can't explain to you the sense of God's good pleasure upon my life. I just had this overwhelming sense that wherever I go, whatever I touch is going to be blessed. Just like Paul, they took a sweat rag from building tents and they took them hundreds of miles away and laid them on demon-zest people and sick people and they were healed. They believed that God could do that through this sweat rag of Paul's and it happened according to their faith. It's just like, I sense that. And now my time's coming to an end here at Red Bluff and like, what are you gonna do next? It's like, I don't have to figure it out. God's already got it planned out. I just, it's, I can't explain to you how joyful it is. There's no worry. There's no anxiety. There's just this overwhelming sense that I've been saved by grace. God's grace is going to continue. And let me tell you, you can ask Cheryl, I am no saint. <laughs> Not from a man's point of view. I, 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 everything you struggle with and all your sinful actions and thoughts and deeds, they're mine. And they're everybody else's. But yet, at the same time, I know I am holy as God is holy because the Lord says so. And that as we come together as believers, we are saints without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, the bride of Christ, ready for that day. And, and God's good hand is on us. I know the thoughts, he says in Jeremiah, that I have towards you, thoughts of good and not evil to give you a hope and a future. Do you know that? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You, do you understand? It's the concept from the greater to the lesser. God already gave us the greatest thing he could ever give us. So whatever you're asking for, whatever your needs are, it's always lesser than that. So if God says, if I'm willing to give you the greatest thing, my only begotten son, to come in human flesh and to be tortured and die for your sin, what could you ask me that's greater than that? <laughs> and if I'm willing to do that, then you know that everything lesser I'm also willing to do. In Romans 8.33, who shall bring charge against God's elect? Satan, you, me, people that are twisted. They, they, they start sounding sometimes like Satan, the accuser of the brethren, wanting to believe evil things about others. But it's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? But it's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who makes intercessions for us. The Lord Jesus right now is thinking about you. <laughs> the spirit of God's groaning within us to, to ask for things that we normally wouldn't ask for and know exactly what to ask for. But through the groanings, the perfect will of God, it's going before the Lord. And Jesus is before his father pleading on our behalf. And so it's important that, to, to realize we are not a good judge of ourselves as well as anybody else. We just can't. We're, we're, we're fickle human beings. We feel good and we say, man, I feel great. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, and, and it's like, no, you're not really doing that great. Remember the church of Laodicea? 
we're doing great. We got, we're rich and we're building new houses and we got built this great building. And he says, no, you, you got a compromising heart. So just because you feel great, does it mean you're great? No, but the Bible says that if I confess my sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive me of that sin that I know about and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Where a sin abounds, his grace amounts more, right? So I'm walking on the faith of God's word. I may feel great, but it doesn't matter. And then you feel bad. Oh man, I'm such a sinner. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if God ever even heard one of my prayers. I don't know, you know. Then we feel guilty. No, we don't feel like a saint again. When Jesus says, judge not, <laughs> that you be not judged, I think you're in that also. Don't judge yourself. <laughs> don't judge anybody else and don't judge yourself. So let's just take God at his word right now in truth. We are saints. Listen to these verses. I'm gonna rattle some off. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In John, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we're cleansed from all unrighteousness, that means we're standing in perfect righteousness, right? In Proverbs 24.16, the righteous man may fall seven times and rise again but the wicked shall fall by calamity. So the righteous man falls and falls and falls and falls, but by faith in the grace of God, we keep rising up. In Ephesians 5, 25, 27, husbands love your wife just as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, that he might be sanctified and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy, sanctified, set apart, and without blemish. In Lamentations 3.22, through the Lord's mercies were not consumed because his compassions fell not. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, you began the good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a great one, isn't it? It's like Jesus saying, believe that you can ask a mountain to be removed. You know, if I, if I were out preaching, believe God to pull up a whole mountain and cast it into the sea. You might say, Brian, you need to tone that. You're getting heretical. You're getting extreme. That's sort of crazy. I don't think Jesus would ever say that. But yet he did, didn't he? He did. He said, believe those kind of great things can happen. It's sort of in the same way here. He's saying anything's possible if you're walking in the faith in the work of Christ. In 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are of God. We are saints. We are his children. We've already overcome it because Jesus who lives in us is at the right hand of the Father. In 1 John 4, 17, love has been perfected amongst us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, 
so are we in this world. As he is right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father in his brand new body, he's saying that's us right now. The Father looks at Jesus in heaven and he looks at you right now, even though you're in sinful bodies. He's not looking on the outward man because he knows we're a bunch of sinners and our human righteousness is like filthy rags, right? But yet when he looks at you and and he already sees us, Ephesians 2 says, seated with him in heavenly places, he already sees us as saints. He already sees us just like he looks at Jesus, perfect in righteousness at his right hand. He's looking at you right now and saying, these guys are perfect. And, And I want you guys to be bold in the day of judgment. Why should I let you into my heaven? Because I'm a saint. (laughs) I'm holy. How how is that possible? Being a human. All things are possible to him who believes. And I believe, I love that about Abraham. It says Abraham being 99 and Sarah being 90. Against hope and hope he believed. I love that in, in Romans 4 about Abraham walking by faith. Against hope. For me to ever think I could be holy or a saint or righteous or the pure bride of Christ, that's against hope. Believe me, I've tried to live a righteous life in my own strength. And, and, you know, there was a time I was a Pharisee trying to make myself be what I thought God wanted me to be. And it just crushed me. I just destroyed myself. And I finally just came to the place going... If I'm ever righteous, it's not going to be through any power of me or any willpower of me. Uh, You know, I'm still going to be the biggest sinner in the world. It's got to be the work and the grace of Christ. He goes on in verse 18 and 19 of 1 John 4. But there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Do Do you get this, guys? Let's just shove everything else away and just say, God loves us. Right? God loves us. Who can, can get us? God loves us. <laughs> Should we forgive somebody seven times a day, Lord? <laughs> no, 70 times seven, daily. If the Lord wants us to that, do that towards one another, you be the first to love. Well, should I forgive that guy after seven times? You always be the person loving. On the eighth time and the 498th time, you be the one, because that's me. It's it's not the guy that, that everybody sees as this holy and righteous guy. It's the guy who's walking by faith, knowing God has made him a king. God has made him his children. God has made him righteous as he is righteous. You know, it it wasn't the Pharisee praying, going, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Thank you that I tithe perfectly, and and thank you that I pray so many times a day, and thank you that, and this tax collector just banging his chest, going, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, when they left the temple, which one of those did God see as righteous? Just think about it. Do you want to be around some guy who thinks that about himself, like that Pharisee? But what about a humble guy who who wants to be holy, trying to be sanctified, 
stumbling and falling as we do, the righteous man falls seven times. It doesn't say the unrighteous man falls seven times. It says the righteous man. But yeah, what happens? He gets up because he pounds his chest and he knows by faith God's mercy is there upon us. God has done that work. And he has called us faithful brethren and then grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace until you have grace. That's it. Jesus offers us grace. You don't deserve it. Not one of us are going to go, of course he died on the cross for me. Duh, I'm so worth it. We, we know that's never going to happen. But God just blesses us and loves us and, and, and just gracious to us. I, I honestly think we should just throw the word love out of the English-speaking Bible and just write agape in there or whatever it is because the concept that Hollywood has perverted with the word love where, you know, birds are chirping and, you know, the sun comes up perfectly as you're sitting on the beach and, you know, this kind of thing where people can fall in and out of love. You know, love is like almost the agape love it's like full of commitment. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's not sitting around going, I don't really feel love towards you anymore. It's, it's like irrelevant. It's, it just keeps on pursuing. And so there's only one way to have a relationship with God. That's to understand grace and his love and his care for you and by faith to receive it. And that's how we are in harmony with God. God, I'm a sinner. doesn't matter. We have boldness in the day of judgment because we are perfected in the love of God, knowing his great love for us. We are saints. We are holy. We are faithful. God, who began that good work, he's going to do it. I don't know what the Lord's going to do this week, but God's going to do something great because he has called me as his work of art to do incredible things. I believe it. And then there's a peace. In the same way, towards one another. If you're just gracious, that's it. Well, I, I love you, brother. I, I've had so many people say that and, and, and treat me horribly. And it's like, you don't ever have to say, I love you. Jesus never said it. You'll never find in the New Testament where Jesus says, I love you, Peter. I love you, John. He doesn't say that to anybody. But we see his love. How? In graciousness and in kindness. So I, I don't care if you ever feel a romantic, gooey feeling. Oh, I love Pastor Brian. He's been so great. I, I could care less if you ever feel that. Just be gracious. That's it. And kind. I, I think those two things. It's just like, hey, don't worry about it. Yeah, you were, we're all human. We do that kind of stuff. Well, what you said, yeah, don't worry about it, man. I. I'm the biggest idiot I know. Uh, you know, I, I just know all of us in human flesh are a bunch of idiots. We're all selfish. We're all stinky. <laughs> we, we all want our place, our seat, our time, our, the temperature uh, you know, the way we want it. And, and, and we want everybody to encourage me. I don't want to have to call and encourage anybody else. But man, I'm mad that they didn't call and encourage me. It's like, just stop it all a bunch of sinners and we're all going to look like a bunch of sinners until we're out of this body with the Lord. And 
I'm just going to have grace. Sorry for being late. Don't be. I love you. I'm late. Things happen like that. Don't, don't even worry about it. It just, I just want to be gracious. And then you have the peace. So from Jesus Christ, through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to give us his grace and then to receive his peace. have several verses on that. I wish I could have time to go into it. We don't. Let me, let me just read these ones on peace real quick. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What did we learn about Jesus' peace? It's not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. Let it not be afraid. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. God's peace will take away all of those yucky things that, that bother us and drag us down and, and protect our hearts and minds. It's a love that humans, I can't even explain it, but I just want to be gracious and merciful and kind and gentle and self-controlled and just to want to bless you and serve you. And, and one more, Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. So if you're not in peace, it's because you're not being gracious. You're not walking by faith, receiving the mercy and the grace and the love and the kindness of God. And you don't have peace because you're not loving your enemy and praying for them, blessing them, doing good to them, feeding them, greeting them, loving them as Christ loved us while we were still sinners. Amen. Well, Lord, thank you again for your word here tonight. And we just ask in Jesus' name, you'd wash us in that word to know we are King's kids, that you have done something magnificent in our lives that your good thoughts towards us are, as it says in Psalm 139, more than the sands of the sea. And that your grace towards us is grace upon grace of your fullness, not little scraps, but of your fullness we've received, grace upon grace. That we would leave here today just having such a peace towards you and a peace towards everybody on the earth. <laughs> because you are looking past our humanness. You're looking at our hearts and that we would just look past everybody's human, sinful, weak, fragile, selfish, greedy self that we keep falling into every day and just have love and kindness and just a gracious heart that we would speak no evil of any man, but only what's good in the sight of God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. God bless you.